race-informed college admissions are out, race-based districting remedies are in. From SDPB Radio, today is Wednesday, July 12th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we continue our series of conversations about recent decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. We start with Mike Thompson from the University of Sioux Falls. We'll talk about a stalking case as we explore what it means to have actual malice. Then SDSU political scientists Dave Wiltsey and Lisa Hager join us. We'll explore gerrymandering and when race can be considered in redistricting and when it can't. And we'll keep the conversation going about other cases that impact our lives. Plus, we look at blossoming flowers and touring musicians. Both those conversations are coming up a bit later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from STPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. One year ago today, the James Webb Space Telescope released its first set of images. Those images and others released in the past year each serve as a time machine of sorts. They give us a glimpse at the universe from thousands, millions, and even billions of years ago. Well, this morning I spoke with Carl Gordon. He's an astronomer at NASA. We look back at a year of images from the web and look forward at what might be to come. Take a listen. I want to start with this image that has been released on the anniversary of James Webb. And when I look at it, I just see (laughs) it's so nuanced. There's these red and white and rust-colored swirls. There's jets of light. Um, Part of it looks like a a hot coal on a backyard barbecue. What am I looking at? So, yeah, so it's an awesome picture. It's very beautiful. So it's, it's, you were looking at a star-forming region in Ophiuchus that's about 400 light years away. And so you're seeing newly formed stars that are forming out of uh, the interstellar matter, which is those swirls and so on. And so in a little more detail on the bottom, you're seeing actually a star that's illuminating all that in the, in the yellows and oranges. That's what's illuminating all the, all the interstellar matter around there. So you can see it all lit up and you can see all the structures. And then more on the top, all the red, you see all these kind of red filamentary structures. Those are jets of material that's being expelled from the cloud each of those stars formed out of. And they, they, only, they only take up so much of the mass, and then they expel the rest of it. And so that's what you're seeing in, those, in the red is the jets near the top of the image. Wow. So when we look at it here in the newsroom, we just all go, oh, wow. When you look at it, what do scientists say? Do they say wow, too? <laughs> Absolutely we say wow. I mean, the, the pictures are just brilliant. I mean, it, it's amazing to see them. I, you know, I get them on T-shirts there. I love them so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we, we see that. We, then, we, then we can take a step back and then think, okay, what does it mean scientifically and so on? But, yes, definitely we have the same, same reaction as you do. All right. So a year of data from this telescope, what does that mean? How many years of, of research and papers and new science will come out of just that year of data? And we're just getting started. Right. We're just getting started, right? We're going to get maybe, you know, at least 10 years, maybe 20. Depends on lots of things. The engineering of the observatory was so awesome that we are getting longer than we expected, which, uh, you know, as an astronomer makes makes me so happy. Um, And even the first year's worth of data, we have, you know, there have been lots of papers written. There's lots of knowledge we've already gained, but there's a lot more we will gain from it. You know, it takes time to look at this and figure out what it means 
you know, you have to remember astronomers haven't seen this data before either. And so we, you know, we we're learning a great deal just by looking at the data and trying to understand, you know, what it means and then formulate new questions on what we can say, well, what well, maybe we should look at this next. Yeah. And so it'll be many years worth of research just out of the first years. Absolutely. Do you get pressure to make the research apl applicable in some kind of marketable way or commodifiable way? Or is the science of understanding valued? I think, I mean, astronomy is, is much more uh, pure science in the sense that we're just interested in knowledge. And there's not a lot of money in astronomy in that sense, right? It's not something that you can sell because it's not something we can, we can go to, really. And so it's, uh, it's, it's much more just pure knowledge research. And I don't, I don't feel much pressure to make it, you know, something commercial. Um, and so it's a very enjoyable, I'm very appreciative to have the opportunity to be able to do this. I thank every taxpayer I find because I'm taxpayer funded. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it's in general not pressured to do commodity of commodify it at all or none of that. It's just basic research. Tell me a little bit about the international collaborations and the scientific collaborations that go in to this project, though. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, James Webb is uh, a collaboration between uh, the U.S., Europe, and Canada are the three main uh, people, but it's also worldwide. So these are the people that funded it and that, you know, run it and all that. But it astronomy is a small discipline in, in a sense, and we are very much uh, focused on trying to get the most science out of any observatory we have. And so anyone around the world can propose to observe with the James Webb. Now we have, you know, many more we just have gone through this for the second year of observations, and way more targets were proposed than we could ever observe in a year, even though James Webb observes 24-7. And so we still, we, we have to prioritize, and that's a, a set of astronomers get together, peer astronomers get together to try to come up with what's the best observations that, uh, for the next year. Um, and we can do it, world, and it's worldwide, any, any astronomer, and we get a, proposals from many, many countries around the world. Yeah. Help me understand people. how the technology works. It's not a picture like I take with my iPhone, but it's an image that looks like a photograph to me. How does it work? What am I seeing there? Right. So we're this isn't uh, we're James Webb doesn't observe in the optical where your eyes can see it. We actually observe in the infrared, which is heat. Um, you feel it as heat, um, and so then it's, it looks like a picture because then we just move the colors so we can see it with our eyes when we look at it on a screen. But it's all real. It's just not something we would be able to see unless we shifted the wavelengths, shifted the colors. Does it, sound, does it have a sound? No, I mean, you can, you, can sauna, you can make it into sound, but it doesn't have a sound, no. If you made no, it no, into no. sound, what would it sound like? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I have to think about that. I mean, yeah. what, what would the sound be? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have an answer. That's a good question, though. One more thing that. that we don't know and that we hope to know in the future. What's one of your favorite findings so far? Oh, one of my favorite findings. I mean, there's so many. Uh, I've, I, I've loved all the stuff on exoplanets and our solar system, as well as the very high redshift universe. I've been really enjoying seeing the nearby galaxies and the incredible filamentary structures we're seeing in the interstellar matter. So I study interstellar matter as my research area. So that's been very interesting to see all the filamentary structure. And for me, what I'm really excited about, one of the things I'm excited about is we're observing Orion. So the kind of, there's that, there's a bright 
region of emission in Orion, and we're observing it. We've observed it with lots of images. It's very beautiful, but we also have taken spectroscopy, which is not just uh, of images like we're seeing, but very fine images with many, many, many images of many different uh, colors, and we can use that to look at the signatures, the fingerprints of different kinds of gas and dust that's in the interstellar medium. And so that's, I'm, I'm, I like that, that very uh, detailed quantitative information. Yeah. So you're a scientist, Carl, but what does this do to your sense of wonder and uh, your sense of humility and smallness of being a, a human being? Like, how does it affect you as a person? I mean, it definitely gives me a, got a lot of perspective. I mean, the universe is very large and it's full of very interesting things. And so, you know, uh, what what I do is probably not that important, right? You know, so that's the humility, right? It's the universe is large. Um, and I really, I've, I've been really enjoying all the pictures and seeing the details. Um, it, you know, I put them up on my walls just so I can gaze at them. They're, mm. they're beautiful in their own right. Dr. Carl Gordon, uh, NASA astronomer, thank you so much for spending time here in South Dakota bringing us oh. the universe. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We will put images from the James Webb Space Telescope up on our website, sdpb.org news, and check us out on Instagram at sdpbinthemoment. Welcome back to In the Moment on listener-supported SDPB Radio. I'm Lori Walsh. We're spending time this week talking with University of Sioux Falls professor Mike Thompson about recent decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. Today, a stalking case that's really a free speech case. It's the case of Billy Counterman. He's a Colorado man obsessed with a singer known in the case by the initials C.W. This, this fella, uh, he... Uh sent a bunch of Facebook messages. He would create multiple Facebook accounts, and he was always um, trying to get to this local singer. And she was afraid. She was afraid. These were what uh, I think what any reasonable person would, would call um, concerning communications. And so they finally charged uh, Counterman with, uh, under a Colorado statute, criminal statute that makes it unlawful to repeatedly make any form of communication with another person in a manner that would cause a reasonable person to suffer serious emotional distress and does cause that person to suffer serious emotional distress. Most criminal statutes uh, have a, uh, a mens rea uh, requirement and an actus reus requirement. I feel like I'm in Legally Blonde, where the first scene they're talking about mens rea. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I would like to point out that not only is there no proof in this case, but there's a complete lack of um, mens rea, which by definition tells us that there can be no crime without a vicious will. I am aware of the meaning of mens rea. What I'm unaware of is why you're giving me a vocabulary lesson when you should be questioning your witness. The, the actus reus part, which is the perverted action, uh, th here is the communication that causes the serious emotional distress. What, what's missing from this statute is a mens rea, which is some level of guilty mind that has to accompany the physical act. So in South Dakota, we recognize malice, intent, knowledge, recklessness, negligence. Those are all levels of mens rea. This statute doesn't have any of those in it. 
And so the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, and this opinion uh, is, is a mixture of presidential appointees. This isn't along the six three lines that have started to develop. I think uh, Kagan actually uh, wrote this opinion. So the, the question is whether, the, whether he made a true threat uh, because the First Amendment will not protect a true threat against somebody's uh, well-being. And the court said that uh, the statute has to have a mens rea or else it violates the First Amendment. Uh, it, now, that doesn't mean his conduct is, uh, that you can't get at that kind of conduct. You just mm -hmm. can't get at his conduct under this statute. You would have to go back and say, and the Supreme Court says at least, uh, at least the mens rea, the guilty mind, has to be recklessness. I got a substantial disregard for what my conduct is going to do to the victim. What, what is the alternative here? Someone who is threatening someone hence just no concept <laughs> that that's a threat. I mean, so t help me understand why when a threat would be a protected, when would a threat be protected under the First Amendment? Well, or threatening language, I guess. When would it be protected? Yeah. When the person doesn't intend it to be harmful. Okay. When the, when the person just acts with recklessness about its harmfulness. That's is this when. a social media case, largely, or is it different? I mean, that, the, no, there's a, the, is there a difference in our social media world that this would have an impact on? Because yeah, people say ridiculous things all the right, time on social right, media that right. you're often told, oh, don't take that seriously. Right. You're like, well, wait a minute. You know, these the, people just said they're going to come destroy me. I take that seriously. Now, no, it's not. It's not a true threat. It's not a true threat. It's yeah. not, a, not made with the intent to alarm or annoy or harass or. It's, now, th in this, but this case was also another gateway for Justice Thomas to say, we got to get rid of the actual malice standard, from New York Times versus Sullivan. Oh. Uh, uh, which says that you can't, of course, actual malice really protects journalists from uh, libel and slander suits as long as as long as there's truth he's he's really on that he's on that wagon to get rid of that make the connection malice. between a stalker in Colorado and the New York Times <laughs> you want me to make a connection between that um, well the, from from Thomas's point of view he is making that connection based on what that's a mystery I, that's a mystery to me I, how he gets from this criminal case and, and the use of a threat to we got to get rid of the we, we've got to quit protecting journalism and journalists uh, when they talk about public figures, because the actual malice standard, if I'm going to talk about a public figure, I'm protected in doing that as long as what I'm saying is uh, as long as I don't have a reckless disregard for the truth. And that may be why, how he keyed into it, because the court says here that there has to be a recklessness mens rea before you can charge somebody criminally for what they say. So he opens the door in his writings then to say, bring me another case? Oh, yeah. 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 I don't know that there's support for that. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh.
Well, before the break, you heard a legal take on a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision from my ongoing conversation with Professor Mike Thompson from the University of Sioux Falls. We'll have more with him tomorrow. But now let's get a political take on recent cases and their possible impacts during our Dakota Political Junkie segment. David Wiltsey and Lisa Hager are both associate professors of political science at South Dakota State University in Brookings, and they are with me from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at SDSU. Dr. Wiltsey, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Dr. Hager, welcome as well. Thanks for having me. Do you want to start with uh, a little bit more on this 303 Creative versus LNS uh, case? Um, that seems like a good place to start. This is the web designer, designer who does not want to have her right to free expression infringed by being forced by the state, according to her, to create content for a gay wedding. Is that a good place to start, Lisa? Yeah, we can definitely start with that. I'm not sure I can top a legally blonde quote, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you I know, mean, this was could? one of yes. those. <laughs> right. You know, I was like, that. that is pretty good. But yeah, I, I don't think I have anything that will top that. But we it, shall see. I wanna, we'll, let the, we'll let the listeners decide. We'll let the listeners decide. Because I do feel like we need to dig into more about this case. There isn't an actual gay couple in it. And, you know, since we're talking politics, you know, this isn't just a it didn't matter so much in the legal decision. But reporting revealed later on that there was no the man's phone number that was listed in the case was a man who'd been married to a woman, didn't want anything to do with this case whatsoever. And yet his name is forever um, chiseled in stone for the U.S. Supreme Court hearing. What's going on and how does that reveal doubts about legitimacy of the court when a case can not really be from somebody who had an actual problem. Right. So that's one of the first things that came up when everyone started talking about this decision, which relates to this idea of standing to sue. You know, we require something bad, essentially, to have happened to somebody in order for them to bring their suit and so we have to have these parties who are actually going against each other so there's really some adverseness occurring and so here essentially what we have is we have the the website designer who just wants to post a notice on her website that would refer same-sex couples to other web designers because she doesn't want to do a wedding website for a same-sex couple and so, yeah, there's a there's a lot of questions about, you know, why would this type of case even get decided in the first place? Like, no same-sex couple approached her and actually asked her to design a website. So this is different than a case that was decided a few years ago relating to the same Colorado law Masterpiece Cake Shop. So we actually have a same-sex couple in that situation going into Masterpiece, Masterpiece Cake Shop asking for a wedding cake for their same-sex marriage ceremony. So there we actually have something happening. We have the bakery owner not wanting to actually produce that particular baked good. Here we don't have a similar type of situation. But there are instances where we have the Supreme Court having somewhat lax standards in certain time periods relating to issues like standing. So, for instance, it would be very difficult to ever hear a case regarding abortion from someone who 
was pregnant and was trying to challenge an abortion law because our justice system does take more than nine months, for instance, to process these kinds of cases. Sure. Dave, what do you want to add to that? Well, what's striking here is uh, the court has often used standing as a way to kind of chicken out of a Mm -hmm. lot of decisions, where the one that comes to mind is the Michael Newdow case versus Elk Grove, uh, where they avoided making a ruling on the constitutionality of the phrase under God in the um, in the Pledge of Allegiance. So they've used that as a nice way to kind of weasel out of a decision they might think is unpopular. But here they go out of their way, uh, ignore the whole standing thing ostensibly, and you know just to enter into uh, you know what is a real hot button cultural issue right now. Uh, that's really beginning to uh, define the lines between left and right. Um, So in a lot of ways, this just makes the court look a lot more political than they like. Uh, And they're really, you know, at least from my perspective, they're they're really trying to, uh, uh, or they're really uh, avoiding some of the standard operating procedures that have always guided them just so they can enter into the political fray. And in some ways, just this seems like an old game of Calvin ball, if you remember Calvin and Hobbes, where <laughs> the rules just seem to change uh, in any given circumstance, in any given case. And what it just looks like is the court has their um, prior uh, preference, and then they reason backwards to get there in whatever way they can. And that just, you know, like you said, with the uh, legitimacy of the court really being called into question now. This is not a place where they need to be. Let's dive further into that, if that's even possible, by holding up two cases that are um, interesting accordingly, and that's the, the, the Harvard affirmative action race-based college admissions case versus this case that says um, that talks about redistricting and using race-informed information to redistrict something because the court seems to be saying two separate things. Are they saving two separate things? Are they not? Dave, help us understand what's happening in these two cases and how they are kind of in conversation with each other. Well, I've I've never really thought of how they're kind of interplaying with each other uh, before, but um, I mean, with this Harvard case, I mean, we've seen, you know, the court since the uh, 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 case stemming from uh, Davis, UC, UC Davis uh, versus Baki, yeah, or Baki versus Davis, mm-hmm. um, you know, the court has you know been gradually trimming back affirmative action uh, since the 1970s, and it, you know, affirmative action really began in earnest late 60s, early 70s, and this is just you know a a continuation of this pattern. And in each of these cases, and they've popped up in several places over the past uh, 30, 40 years, where the court has been just kind of whittling down the amount that race can be used in these decisions. Uh, so in many respects, this is not a not a huge surprise um, when it comes to their, their eventual ruling on this. Um, but I mean, the political uh, payout for this is, is pretty patent. Uh, affirmative action has never been uh, uh, terribly popular in the country, particularly amongst um, white Americans. So, you know, the court really is on pretty safe political ground um, on this one. And Lisa, and yet they say when it comes to redistricting, you can 
look at race-based remedies, but you can't make it the predominant factor in drawing district lines. Right. So there's always a bunch of cases relating to redistricting where you can't just be drawing those district lines basically around neighborhoods that tend to be populated with certain races. So what they often refer to as, you know, like political apartheid, so to speak. And so instead, you know, you're supposed to be using a variety of factors that would essentially still create a district that would produce a non-white member of Congress. And so that's where we get that idea of majority minority districts. So they have a majority of African-Americans or Hispanics or really whatever racial or ethnic group you're paying attention to. But it's not necessarily always going to produce that particular race or ethnicity in the member of Congress. It just increases the likelihood that it would be. And so, yeah, there are instances where you can do this, but the reason for it is so that you are not diluting their vote or spreading them out amongst different districts so that you could never actually see an African-American being elected to Congress in that area, despite having a large population of African-Americans or same thing with, you know, a Hispanic member of Congress. And so that's what they're doing here, which is allowed in terms of ensuring that we do not see discriminatory voting practices on the basis of race. Yeah, and the 1982 amendments to the 65 Act, I mean, that really cleared the way for these majority minority districts. Uh, it doesn't go so far as to mandate their creation, but it does set up a, a set of uh, rules in how we can go about uh, trying to ensure uh, good descriptive representation. And to me, this is kind of the, the, the interesting uh, fault line in this case, is you have the Supreme Court on the one hand when it comes to individuals going into university or college or you know, whatever uh, institution we're talking about with affirmative action saying it's not constitutional to use race in these individual cases. But we do have an interest in trying to have good descriptive representation in the larger institutions so that Congress or state legislatures look more like the constituents that they're representing. So in that regard, I'm not terribly surprised that uh, the court uh, continued to give their constitutional countenance to uh, majority-minority districts. It can't be the predominant factor in districting, uh, but it's certainly allowed under some fairly well-described circumstances. So going back to what we were saying about questions about the uh, legitimacy of the court, and really I'm thinking about how we report on the court as a political institution instead of as a a legal institution. There's, There's differences in the choices that you would make in reporting, for example. Do these two cases sort of settle that down a bit because we're watching them uh, follow rules and precedent that we feel is established that makes sense to us. Certainly if they had flipped the decision on uh, the Voting Rights Act, it would have been top stories for for a long time. What do these cases do to that? And then do the justices think about that or do they make these decisions outside of, uh, you know, an awareness that they're being watched because of recent ethics scandals and and other decisions that uh, the scrutiny is high. Do they think about their own legitimacy is what I'm asking. Oh yeah, definitely. So quite a bit of my research looks at this issue of institutional legitimacy 
and how the court perceives that and uses court curbing legislation as a way to gauge what their current institutional legitimacy is. And so when they're kind of seeing that, you know, there is these court curbing bills being introduced and they're coming especially from members of Congress who actually tend to agree with them most of the time, that's really a clear signal that their institutional legitimacy is in decline because we also know that members of Congress are not actually well, at least previously, I think maybe some of them do actually want to pack the court and, and do some of these various changes to their composition and even their jurisdiction. But in general, they really don't want to make those kinds of changes. They really just want to try and get the Supreme Court to come back in line with congressional preferences and essentially the preferences of their constituents that are you know, going to be pleased with the fact that their member of Congress introduced a bill that would restrict the Supreme Court's power in some particular way. Yeah, and I would just add that in this uh, districting case, you know, politics is not absent here. Both parties are cross-pressured on this. For Democrats, they're cross-pressured by this fact that typically they're much more receptive to these kinds of uh, uses of race in, um, you know, whether it be affirmative action or kind of structuring districts in this fashion, uh, but it also means that uh, they're going to be packing Democrats into these districts, so it really is kind of a net political loss for um, for Democrats, whereas Republicans, you know, these kinds of districts are typically a net gain simply because they're packing all those Democrats into these uh, fewer districts, and that means Republican votes are amplified outside. So I wouldn't say that the court is being all magnanimous here and being guided solely by principle. There are some, you know, real uh, political um, factors here that they're undoubtedly taking into account. Well, and from a legitimacy standpoint, they've been previously striking down provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And so by upholding this one, they can also regain some of their political capital from being criticized for striking down things like mm -hmm. the preclearance requirement. Yeah. Yep. Any final thoughts on some of these other decisions that are coming up from the courts that are still being, you know, really analyzed uh, on an ongoing basis? What stands out to you before we close for the day? I think one thing is that we're seeing the court grapple with a lot of issues where there's real no clear guidance in the Constitution that tells us what to do when there's a discrimination issue going up against a First Amendment issue. Right. So I think that's something to keep in mind is that they're trying to deal with this balancing, but then also that, yes, some may like these decisions, some may not like these decisions, but we just kind of have to see how they actually play out. So we can't just necessarily assume certain things will happen as a result of these particular decisions. There's still ways to ensure diversity in universities in light of this decision. There's still ways to ensure that people are not discriminated against in public accommodations for their sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, you name it. Yeah, and I'm most concerned about how the court in the last few sessions really has been creating more and more ways for discrimination to take place of a protected class based on another constitutional right. Uh, so this is something that for a lot of folks uh, who are concerned about civil uh, rights and civil liberties, this is a warning sign. And you know the court is getting um, more lenient when it comes to these sorts of uh, exemp exceptions to discrimination law. 
Associate Professor Dave Wiltsey and Associate Professor Lisa Hager, both from South Dakota State University, joining us today to talk further about the U.S. Supreme Court. Mike Thompson from the University of Sioux Falls will uh, wrap up our conversations this week with him tomorrow. Professor Wiltsey, thank you so much. Thanks. Professor Hager, thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. For our gardening conversation today, we're going to talk with Eric Helland about a very important question, what is blooming right now in South Dakota? Eric is president and owner of Landscape Garden Centers, and he's with me in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome back. How are you? I am doing well. There Good. was a, a intense period of rain yeah. in the city of Sioux Falls last night. It woke me up, and this morning all my flowers were flattened. Laying down. They're laying They're down. They're taking down. a They're little rest. A <laughs> They're really tired trying to be holding up throughout all the heat and the drought and all of that stuff. So It's hard work being a flower. It is. Absolutely. Try it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So what do you just wait and do nothing? <clears throat> Yeah, don't. Okay. Everything will pop back up. Things will dry out. A lot of it might, because I think the rain is pretty intense. So mm -hmm. it might have been like a bucket of water being thrown on it, where things flatten out, and then all of a sudden they'll pop back up. Um, if you see some branches or stuff that start to discolor after a couple of days, then just trim them off, and they'll fill back in. But boy, what a welcome rain! Exactly. Very welcome. Middle of July <clears throat> here, I think yeah, we're looking awesome. at, uh, and we still have some rain and some green. Mm -hmm. What's blossoming right now? So um, perennials are really kind of kicking it into high gear. So you have a lot of your daylilies that you're starting to see bloom. Um, hydrangeas are going to start. You're going to start to see them form the flowers. Um, What's a hydrangea? Oh, we've talked about hydrangeas many times. Oh, the this big, is the, the big, big poofy Yeah, ones. the big okay. poofy snowballs are yes, what people you. talk about, you know. But then there's different colors, and they're right. just, those are in actually pretty much full bloom, too, depending on the different varieties. Yeah, mine are looking pretty good. Yeah. My yeah. peonies Pop never up. popped. They did They just stayed in little balls. They looked like they were going to go, and then they didn't. Really? So. I don't know what. They've changed their mind. Yeah. Well, do they dry up? Do the, Maybe. The, do the buds dry up then, or are they still there? I ha No, the buds are still there. Are no. they still green? Yeah. If they're still green, they might they still... They might just... Yeah. Taking their time. How about yeah, hostas? Hostas are... Hosta time? Um, so the hostas, there's many different varieties of those, and those will tend to flower at various times starting now. And so they'll shoot those spikes off. I call them the sparklers because they'll either throw up white flowers or purple lavender flowers. Um, and so that adds some interest. I was um, talking to a fabulous gardener last night, and when you say there are many varieties of hostas, I'm how not many? Lying. Oh, hundreds, hundreds, thousands, probably. Yeah, and they keep on coming up. And so the thing about our industry is that when you have something that arrives or shows up that's just a little bit off from its parent plant, sure. then that can become its the next new plant the next big thing it kind of gets frustrating when For you're trying you. to, yeah <laughs> trying to keep up trying to keep up with everything and trying to you know be ahead of the game because then they get thrown into a magazine and then everybody want well i want that and then it's, well there's a little bit of all right so can you plant i remember when i first moved into my house which has been more than 20 years now and there was a wonderful woman named ruth who had lived there before me and it was timed so i thought mm-hmm 
you would see something bloom one week and then that would sort of fade and the next thing would blossom and then the next thing. And I, yeah. I regret to inform you that I was not very good at keeping up with what Ruth had done. But most of what's in my yard is something that was originally planted by her. By Ruth, sure. How do you t- how do you make timing decisions so that you have something beautiful to look at all year in your in your yard and so landscaping? That is that's a great question because there is a lot of stuff is like early so you have spring blooming you have late spring and then you have early summer and it's just basically trying to coordinate with those as far as colors and textures and things like that and then that way you can always have something that is going on between now until the end of the season and then that's when. Every leaf becomes a flower. <laughs> Getting into the fall. There yeah, you go. I like that one. Exactly. What, uh, it's popular when a, a new variety comes out uh, mm-hmm. of a hosta, for example, for the people who are really into this. Yep. And um, what else is trending right um, now? Right now, anything that has a flower. So coneflower right now are just right. I mean, there's so many bright, bright colors of coneflowers, and they're not... Um, they don't get really long and leggy. They're usually shorter, so they're really kind of robust when they're when they're planted. And then when you plant those in masses, they just actually throw out a, a lot of color. Um, that's a really those are really popular. Um, shade, and then basically it comes down to is figuring out if you have shade or sun, and then which ones are you know you can't typically you won't find plants that are blooming in the shade. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few that are out there, but like, yeah, it's coordination of trying to figure it out. And that's what you can do a lot of times. Take pictures at various times throughout the season, like now. Yeah. And then that's something to work on in the wintertime. Okay, I've got this at this week and then this, you know, what's going on because it's constantly changing. Tell me more about the cone flowers and how to keep them looking their brightest and best. It's, those are so easy. You just plant them. Make sure they get a little bit of water. I mean, coneflower, echinacea, that there's a variety that's actually native to this area. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's kind of, it's uh, it's a bulletproof. The ones that we're talking about are the ones that have been hybridized and changed and all of that stuff. But they're very, very simple. They're, you can grow them. Do you deadhead yeah. these things when the blossoms are done? Does it depend on yeah, the you plant? Can. Yeah, you know, Well, I mean, a lot of people will do that from the standpoint. It's just from the looks of it. Sure. Um, like daylilies, once they get spent, then what we do is we send our team out and they go out and they deadhead it. Um, usually, sometimes you want to leave that on there because then it will develop a seed pod. And sometimes that seed pod will actually produce another plant or otherwise other times it's basically a, um, a seed pod that will not do anything. It's yeah. just going to be there. But just remove those, remove the stalks because then that way it kind of keeps everything clean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spent. I like that. I've I've been spent spent before. There's days where I'm spent. (laughs) Eric Helen, thank you so much. You can find our gardening conversations and videos with Eric uh, teaching you beginner through advanced on our website at sdpb.org. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Grit and sweat and hope I carry on 
from Georgia to Maine And I go Yesterday, Do you while many new country artists are exploring how to blend the iconic genre with other genres, particularly pop or rock, Alma Russ and Mamie Lou are instead looking to take country music back to its roots. Alma and Mamie are folk country singer-songwriters. They're in Sioux Falls today. They'll perform at Monk's Ale House tonight. But before they fill the bar with live music, they have joined me in the Kirby Family Studio. Elma, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Mamie, welcome as well. Thank you for having me. So are you touring together? Oh, yeah. All packed up in a, in a Prius. How did you meet? We met at a, at a music venue in Georgia, Augusta, Georgia. We were on the lineup together. And we both liked the little town of Terlingua, Texas and Emmylou Harris. That was like... That was like how I was like, okay, we're going to be friends. Yeah. So. so I grew up on Emmy Lou Harris and Dolly yes. Parton, all those old records that my mom had. Um, it's People are still listening to that as foundational. Maybe tell me a little bit why those voices just don't go away. They're not going to be silenced. Right. I think it's the, especially Emmy Lou, like with her haunting um, harmony on everything, like that's always been an inspiration to me and the records that my dad handed down to me mm. you know it was like Jackson Brown and Amy Lou Harris and so I think one of the first ones was Luxury Liner and I, I went through and found every one of her albums on vinyl yeah. that I could and just kind of immersed myself when did you that. when you're listening to that realize somebody was writing the song uh, probably when I heard Jackson Brown's uh, These Days yeah <laughs> and I found out he did that when he was 16 and I was like wow like that is that is intense. And and write what you know. Yeah. Tell right. me yeah. Tell write me a little know. bit about that and how, what it means to you because a lot of people get that advice. Yes. But for you that opened up a whole world of like wow. It did. This and is I, a complicated story that now shows up in your music. The best advice I've ever gotten was write what you know. I took a so there's a group called the Songtown um, they do a really great job of fostering writers and like having offering classes, and they genuine genuinely believe in like uh, building the craft. Um, and so they gave me a scholarship for a course with Bonnie Baker, um, who's an incredible prolific writer. And the advice that she gave was like, write what you know. And so, and like, you know, if you've never been in love, don't write about being in love. And so that's, I actually wrote a song called What I Know. <laughs> and uh, it, being honest in, um, in that songwriting really, I felt like is when you start connecting with yeah. people, which is what I always want to want to do, is give the words that somebody might not have. To, to do that, you had to reveal things about your life. Yeah, you got to be vulnerable. Yeah. What was that so. like for you? The first time you're playing that and you realize, like, oh, somebody just knows that I used to live in my car. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, well, it, it's scary because, you know, you have the worry of, like, oh, what are people going to think? Like, are they going to judge me? Like, are they going to judge my dad for having me in that situation? But, you know, the whole point of the song is, like, that was some of my happiest yeah. times living in that car. <laughs> 
Elma, talk to me a little bit about songwriting. You're inspired by John Prine and Towns Van Zandt and other people. How do you approach writing a, a new song? A lot of times I'm just trying to tell myself stuff. Because cause I, I, I write things sometimes just to remind myself of things that I need to know and maybe other people need to know too. And I know y'all were just talking about writing what you know. And I believe that, but I also love storytelling. And I make up a lot of stories. But I think where the writing what you know comes in with that, it's like, yes, this I, I got this song off of stories from people around me or history or other people's experiences sometimes. But the emotions are things that we can all connect to. And, and I relate to the emotion that comes from this story. Yeah. And it's... And it becomes about other things to you sometimes over time, too. You got oh, to... yeah, the evolution. Yeah. Like, I've written songs about people that I've yeah. met on the road, um, and it's about one thing, but then over time, it's like, I feel like this is about me. Mm. <laughs> and I don't <laughs> know if that's because we time. tend, to, tend yeah. to live out our songs or what, <laughs> right, but, right. yeah. Yeah, but say more about that, and then, too, what that song can mean to a listener who then takes it into a direction that you're never going to know yeah. because you don't know everybody who's just oh, left the venue. That, we all have that. our own personal relationship with a song. That's yeah. what's wonderful. Yeah. It's it's you know like you don't it doesn't have to mean the same thing to you as it does to me. Um but then again it can mean the same thing which is what makes it so lovely. Like I think a big thing about art is it's you putting a piece of of something you're feeling out there and other people getting to go like, "Oh my gosh, it's not just me, it's you too." <laughs> And I think that's I think that's part of why we do it, you know, is to I hope people feel less alone after they hear us, you know. Yeah. So to that point, did the pandemic and the isolation of the pandemic help you feel grounded as a musician or did it sort of knock you out of place and you had to find your way back to center? As artists, <laughs> how did that time kind of affect you creatively is what I'm wondering. Can I go first? Yeah. I think it, I'm very antsy, and I probably drove my family really nuts. Because mm. um, I was like, what am I doing with my life, you know? But I think it also, I mean, it forced me to just really latch on to my relationships that I have with my family and, and my home, because I'm traveling a lot. So. Do you hear it show up in your work now in unexpected ways? Do you hear like, oh, wait, that so. wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone through, gone oh, through that time. That Makes you value. It made, you, it made me value. It made me want to get back out for sure. Yeah, it made no. me value the – because, okay, I know some people who don't love performing, but yeah. I think we can both really – like the option. We love <laughs> performing. Like, I would rather perform than record. Like, I love connecting with an audience yeah. and um, – just realizing how valuable that is yeah. when you're not able to do it, and and we were talking about this too. Yeah, like this everyone, was, everyone was like, everyone was like, oh well, live stream. That's the future yeah. of music, and that broke my heart when people said that because I was like, it's not the same. Like I, was, I respect yeah. people that do it, and it's wonderful. And maybe I'm just saying this because I'm not technologically savvy, but like it's I just love not the, the same. access it gave people. I love the uh, yes. idea access that, that you had access been there, right? And then now it was it became a necessity. So it's not just helpful for like songwriters, but anyone with any kind of like disability that can't, you right. know, typically like it gave access to everybody. So but I, I disagree do. that you don't need the live. I learned as an audience goer, since I don't make music, how much I valued it 
and I don't think I'll ever be the same about like I was like oh my gosh I need yeah. them to come back to the right stage. and yes. I miss it I miss it I, I think not having the option so yeah. I worked as a um, my other life is an emergency room nurse and so during that time I was like in the oh. like thick of it front lines like worrying about am I gonna make my family sick am I you know deconning in the yard and yeah. um you know I'm glad I was able to help and be a part of that but like they're there were things, you know, that I will never be able to unlive, I guess, from that time that I don't think I've even started to process yet. But hopefully, you know, that's, I, think, I feel like the songs have always helped me kind of work through those things. And it has bled through in different songs. All right. Seven o'clock tonight, uh, Central Time, Monk's Ale House in Sioux Falls is where you can see Alma Russ and Mamie Lou. Look them up online. We're going to close with a little bit of music from Alma here. But... Uh, Thank you so much for stopping by. And we didn't even talk about American Idol because there were so many other things to talk about. <laughs> but, oh, and just yeah. being yourself and being 100% as an artist. So thank you both for stopping thank by. You thank for you so much us. for having what us. This is so fun to be here. I know. I don't want it to end. <laughs>